You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns to go there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he, and he had compassion for them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But when he answered them, he gave them some. But when he answered them, you go give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread to give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to the heavens and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them, among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they looked and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of all the fish. And those who ate the loaves, there were 5,000 men. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Okay, so before pastoral ministry, uh, I worked as an estimator in the construction trades for a few years. And it was my job, really, to, to get the plans for a new project, scale the architectural drawings, and come up with the correct amount of material that was needed for a job to essentially make sure that there was just a little bit of overage accounting for human error and that sort of thing. My job really essentially was to get the job as as close as possible to meet the need without having any sort of significant amount left over in order to save the company money and that sort of thing. And so while I was actually really pretty good at my job, there were a few times where... I underestimated a job and I came up short, whether it was because I missed a room or a building on an architectural drawing or just I made a dumb mistake in in the math or the equations. There were times where we came up short and typically we wouldn't find out that we're short for a job until everything was in full swing and all the crews are out on the job and there when we're like three quarters of the way done with the project, we realize we don't have enough material and that sort of thing. And uh, so we had this grumpy guy that ran a crew for us and uh, he, he was one of those kind of guys that took advantage of every opportunity to remind me that uh, he was like twice my age and I was young and I was inexperienced and I was pretty horrible at my job and that sort of thing. And so any time that we came up short on a job, I knew the call that I was going to get. And uh, every time I could, I could still hear his voice in my head, he would say, young man, you just can't make chicken soup out of chicken expletive. Fill in the blank. Use your imagination. And essentially what he would say is, you can't make chicken soup out of what you've given us. Chicken crap here. What do you expect us to do? And in those moments, I'd be frustrated. I'd be like embarrassed. But at the same time, I could only appreciate that statement. What do you expect us to do? 
Life can feel like that sometimes, can't it? We're sent into the world, and there we find that we're coming up short. It's like we're expected to make something out of nothing. Whether it's in our own homes or in our community, the the needs of the day are great, and yet what we feel we have to offer, whether it's our time or our energy or our resources, they seem so limited. The, the thought and the feeling, the sentiment really is, how is my measly little this going to affect change out here? No matter where you find yourself today in life, I would imagine that very few of us today would say that we're operating out of a place of margin and abundance, where we feel that we just have a an exorbitant amount of time and energy and resources to tap into. Very few of us would consider ourselves in times of plenty and overflow where we have time to spare, where we have energy to spare, where we have money to spare. And so when it comes to Jesus calling us to give of our time and calling us to give of our resources and uh, calling us to give of our our energy, whatever commodity right now in your life seems so limited, when God says, when Jesus says, okay, go and see what you have, we are often like the disciples. We're often saying, Jesus, come on. This is a desolate place. Jesus, come on, the the hour is, is late. We have so little. Jesus, what you are asking of me, what you are asking of this community is impossible. We just don't have the time. I just don't have the money. I just don't have the energy right now. But what if I told you that that's the point? What if that was the point? That we in of ourselves don't have what it takes. Big picture, we don't have what it takes to save ourselves. Big picture, we don't have what it takes to become what God wills for our lives. Big picture, we don't have what it takes to meet the needs around us. Listen, but he does. That's the point, bringing ourselves to the place where we realize, I am not the world's answer. But God desires to do something through me. This seems to be the big idea here in this account. In faith, we offer Jesus our lack. And in grace, he extends his abundance. What an exchange. That it's not, really, at the end of the day, it's not about what we have to give. It's about what God is doing in and through his people. This is the pattern that we see all throughout Mark so far. We bring need. We bring hurt. We bring brokenness. We bring sin. Jesus extends provision. Jesus extends wholeness. Jesus extends healing. Jesus extends grace and mercy. Jesus is not looking at our lives saying, I can't work with that. I can't work with that. The only thing so far that we see Jesus saying, I can't work with that, is unbelief and pride. Not brokenness, not hurt, not sin. That's where the grace of God shines. He takes the scarcity of our human existence and he transforms it into his abundance. Listen to the words of one of the early church theologians. He said, even though the place is desolate, yet the one who feeds the world is present. And even though the hour is late, yet the one who is not subject to the hour is conversing with you. This morning, what we want to do is we want to talk about this Jesus that is present. 
So what I want to do is I want to answer three questions. Who is Jesus? What is Jesus doing? And how does Jesus accomplish it? Let's first look at this first question. Who is Jesus? Now, so far in the narrative of Mark, the gospel of Mark, there's a big lingering question. Who is this? In Mark chapter 1, Jesus delivers the demoniac in the synagogue, and the people in the synagogue say, what is this? Mark chapter 4, Jesus calms the the storm, and even his own disciples say, who is this? In Mark chapter 6, Herod catches word of this strange miracle worker named Jesus, and he's thinking, who is this? He thinks it's John the Baptist, resurrected from the dead. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? Even for his disciples, as we read this morning, they know that Jesus is significant. They know that there's something important about this this miracle worker, but they are missing what he is capable of. And they're still thinking that Jesus is somehow bound to the typical rules that govern the earth. When, When the disciples tell Jesus, hey, let's like send them away, Jesus, that's a statement that assumes limitation. In other words, Jesus, you preach a mean sermon, but I'm not sure you have what it takes to solve this problem. You you can preach like none other, but we're in a situation that is a little bit beyond what you've got to work with. See, for those who are witnessing the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, his lordship is still concealed. See, for us, the reader, Mark told us right from the very beginning who Jesus is. But for the men and women, real time here, witnessing the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, they're still trying to put the pieces together. Again, they know that there's something significant about Jesus, but the full revelation of his lordship, of his kingship, is still concealed. But this miracle that we're reading of this morning is a huge and significant turning point in Jesus revealing to the disciples who he is. See, we think about miracles. Miracles are not Jesus doing a party trick. This is not Jesus trying to wow a bunch of followers. The purpose of miracles is to showcase the saving and transforming power of God that is now at work in Jesus Christ. The purpose of this miracle and the miracles throughout the gospel is really to display the character of God, his power, his compassion, his generosity. And this is exactly what we're seeing in this miracle this morning. So what does this miracle show us about Jesus? Well, first, it shows us his power. Jesus' power is being put on full display through this miracle. Jesus takes a, a meager portion of food, which Mark tells us is five loaves and two fish, and he multiplies it in order to feed 5,000 men. Now, many believe that there's actually at least 10,000 people present because they only at the time recorded the men that were present not to mention the women and the children. So he takes this measly amount of food and he multiplies it in order to feed the multitude. Now, some have argued that this is Jesus just practically dividing up this food into small, small pieces and then divvying it out to the 5,000 and beyond. Now, with five kids, I know the art of division, okay? So we order a pizza, sure enough, there's a piece of pizza left over, and so you get, the, you get the knife out, and you begin to divide that little piece of pizza into five. Now, dividing into fourths, that's easy. You cut the half, and then you cut the halves in half. But five, that's where the math comes in, a little bit of creativity and ingenuity. 
uh, yesterday morning, we, we, got, we got the kids donuts. Actually, they earned it with a, the report card. So there were just enough donuts to have one half left over. So what do I do? I get the knife and I cut it into fifths and we divide it out. No one's crying. Everyone's happy. So while I would consider myself a miracle worker with the knife, at the end of the day, I'm still working with what I got. Right? It's just a pizza pizza. It's just a half a donut. Jesus is not playing by the same rules. Jesus is not playing within the same set of of limits that we face. Jesus doesn't just divide. Listen, he multiplies. We can divide. We do a pretty good job of that as the church. Ooh. Jesus multiplies. Look at me, verse 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. So even if he just simply divided, then that's a miracle in and of itself, that he took the communion elements and he fed 5,000 and everyone's satisfied. Jesus multiplies and all are satisfied. Jesus provides and satisfies our deepest hungers. That is how the power of God is revealed in our lives. So the question for us this morning is, how would you typically imagine the power of heaven being revealed? If someone said, what does the power of God look like? We'd be looking into the sky. We're waiting for fireworks. We're waiting for a bang. We're waiting for an explosion. We're waiting for some display of brute force. It's interesting. The power of God here is not displayed in a bang or a flash or a display of brute force or really even in a way that necessarily the the, the crowds notice. There's nothing in this passage that leads us to believe that the crowds even knew what happened. It's just the disciples. The power of heaven is revealed as God takes, listen, the insufficient, and he makes it sufficient. We're looking in the sky for bangs and explosion, and yet we're (laughs) overlooking the miracle of new life in our lives. Romans chapter 4 said God gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. How is the power of God being revealed by taking what is lacking and insufficient and bringing it to the place of sufficient? Where there is lack, Jesus extends his abundance. The second thing we see in this passage is Jesus' compassion. We see that Jesus' compassion, in in order to understand who Jesus is, it's important to, to know what Jesus feels. What does Jesus feel? When Jesus sees the people helpless and in need and hungry, what does he feel? And probably the more pertinent question for us today is, how does Jesus feel about us? When was the last time you thought about that? How does Jesus feel about me right now? Is it different now than it was yesterday? Is it different because I've sinned or I'm in this place? Has Jesus' feelings about me changed because I'm so needy or... How does Jesus feel about us? Frustrated? Is Jesus annoyed with you? Is he indifferent? Look at me in verse 34. And he went ashore, he saw a crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. How does Jesus feel about us? Jesus feels compassion. And the word here. It actually means like a deep gut-level feeling. This isn't just sentimental. Jesus is allowing himself 
to feel the pain of their hunger in his own bowels, in his own guts, in his own flesh. What we see here is that God's kingdom is not just, a pow- a, 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 just about power, really. It's about love, strength, and grace. When the Bible describes Jesus, he's described as the lion and the lamb. These are inseparable. But you see, this is probably for where many of us uh, were challenged to receive Jesus for who he is. That Jesus is both powerful and he's compassionate. For some of us, we acknowledge that God is all-powerful. Yeah, we, we, we recognize that God created the heavens and the earth. He upholds the universe by the, by the word of his power. You know, like, yeah, Jesus is all-powerful. He can do anything in the world that he wants. But we struggle to know whether or not he actually cares for us. Yeah, he's like out there in the universe somewhere, like holding all things together, make sure planets spin and do that sort of thing. But like, how much does he actually care for me? Or we acknowledge that God cares and he's compassionate, that Jesus is just like oozing with compassion and love and mercy, but we doubt his ability to do anything in our life. That at best, Jesus is just this warm, heartfelt figure that is weak and impotent. But what this account does is it speaks to both misconceptions. God cares infinitely more than you could ever imagine. And yet he is infinitely more capable than we would ever give him credit for. His kingdom is powerful and deeply compassionate. But actually, there's a third thing that we see in this passage that really, where we see the abundance of Jesus Christ. Jesus is powerful, he's compassionate, but we also see his generosity. I love this. Not only does he meet the needs of the people, not only does he satisfy their appetite. Look with me in verse 43. It says this, and they took up, 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. So after Jesus feeds the 5,000, this is what's left over. So I love this. We step back from the scene. We, as represented by the disciples, we are constantly wondering, how is there ever going to be enough? Meanwhile, Jesus is wondering, how are they going to take home all the leftovers? The, The dilemma of man is What are we going to do with so little? The dilemma of the kingdom of God is, what will they do with my abundance? What will they do with all that's left over? See, this isn't a bare minimum kind of God. This is revealing the kingdom of God that is one of lavish grace, Ephesians 1 tells us. This is he who is able to do abundantly more than we can ask or think. You can never, ever, ever exaggerate the capability of God. He is always better than your best thoughts of him. And listen, he's always better than your worst thoughts of him today too. He's a God of abundance. He's a God of generosity. So now as we step back from this account and we see Jesus' care for the sheep, the sheep without a shepherd, his power and his provisions, what we begin to see is the echoes of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I I shall not want. Jesus sees the sheep without a shepherd and he provides for their needs. He makes me lie down in green pastures. What does he command them to do? To break into groups and sit down in the green grass. He leads me by still waters. What did Jesus just do? He just calmed the storm. 
He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. We, we see here a banquet in the wilderness. My cup overflows. The baskets overflow. Who is Jesus? This is the most important question you will ever ask, by the way. This is not trivial. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the good shepherd who leads, feeds, and as we'll see later in the Gospel of Mark, bleeds for the sheep, for you and I. This is who Jesus is. Secondly, what is Jesus doing? See, in this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, it's a display of who Jesus is, but what we can see encapsulated in this one miracle is really a snapshot of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, what Jesus is doing in eternity, what Jesus is doing in the grand narrative of redemption. And I believe that there's at least three things that we see Jesus doing in this passage. The first is this, that he is inaugurating a new kingdom. Jesus is inaugurating a new kingdom. Now, the fact that Jesus went to the wilderness means something. Typically, throughout history, the wilderness was the staging ground for the resistance. Think about those scenes in the movies where there's a group that is brewing outside of the gates of the city in the wilderness. They're hiding out. They're gaining strength. They're gaining ammunition, waiting for that moment to come and ambush so that they can take over. It's where the coup is started. Jesus is here in the wilderness. And this is what they're expecting Jesus to do. In fact, in a parallel account in John chapter 6, it says that they were intent on taking Jesus by force and making him king. By literally grabbing Jesus and putting a crown on his head because they are convinced now is the time to strike. Rome is on our front doorstep, but Jesus is here and let's begin our revolt. The revolution is now. But what Jesus is doing is he's showing that he brings an entirely different kind of kingdom. This is why I believe that Mark has intentionally paired the account of what we're reading this morning and the banquet feast that we read of that happened earlier in Mark with King Herod. Now, I know that was a month ago. but Try to, try to recall. You know, Herod calls his most honorable men to a banquet where the wine and the food is flowing. He calls out his stepdaughter, probably a teenager, to do a seductive dance. They're all moved by lust and wine, and he says, hey, ask anything up to half my kingdom, and it's yours. She goes away to her mother, and the mother says, that's easy. Give me the head of John the Baptist on the platter. Remember that story? Okay, so we have two banquets, essentially. And what I think Mark is intentionally causing us to see is that there's a contrast between these two banquets. And these two banquets are going to really reveal the nature of the kingdoms that they represent. So just briefly, let's, let's look at the contrast. Herod hosts his guests to impress. He pulls out all the stops. Jesus multiplies the food inconspicuously. Herod, we're told, invites only the choice military leaders and nobles. Jesus, listen, welcomes all. Herod is moved by lust and power. Jesus, we're told, is moved by compassion. Herod exploits the vulnerable. Jesus provides for the vulnerable. 
Herod's guests leave sorry. Jesus' guests leave satisfied. Herod's banquet ends in decapitation and death. Jesus' banquet ends in abundance and life. The tale of two kingdoms. As represented in a banquet, what is Jesus doing? He's inaugurating a new kind of kingdom. The second thing we see him doing is he's ushering in a new creation. Jesus is ushering in a new creation. There's a theologian that described miracles like this. Miracles are the only natural things in a world that is unnatural. See, we typically imagine miracles, if you even believe in miracles, as supernatural. Something that defies the natural world around us. It's like something weird that breaks in that doesn't play by the rules and brings about healing or life or that sort of thing. But what he's arguing is actually that the miracle is the only natural thing in an unnatural world broken by sin. You listening? Okay. The miracle is the revelation, not of some abstract, otherworldly thing. It's a demonstration of what the world was intended to be. The miracles of Jesus are his healing reign, breaking into a broken world, giving us a glimpse of the new creation. For instance, the feast in the wilderness. What's that supposed to point us to? That's supposed to point us to the marriage banquet of the Lamb, where we will sit down with all of our brothers and sisters throughout the generations across the nations and feast. You see, not only do we see this being... Uh, revealed in the feeding of the 5,000, but there's this little seemingly insignificant note in verse 39. It says, Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. Now, Mark, we've talked about this. Mark is all about getting us through the story as fast as possible. Mark is not about the details. He's not about like, let's pause and talk about the landscape right now. Let's just, let's just, Let's just breathe in the beautiful colors of what's going on. He's just immediately, 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 immediately. And yet, why is he telling us about green grass? That's a weird note. I I can't think of anywhere else in, in the Gospel of Mark where Mark's like, hey, pause just real quick. Let me tell you about the grass that was present. It was beautiful. What's the point of the green grass? Remember, this is a desolate place. Okay, we're, we're in the desert right now. This is, a li- this is a lifeless place. Grass, green grass does not belong here. This is the point. What this shows is that Jesus brings life and thriving in the midst of dryness and decay. He brings life in otherwise lifeless places. He is transforming, literally in their presence, he is transforming the desert into a place of rest and refreshment. So the question for us today is, You ever feel like things are dry and dying around you? You ever feel like you're in that desert moment and everything is dying and it is all lifeless and dry? Good news. Jesus is ushering in a new creation. And he's doing this in our midst today. I get to see examples of this um, when I I go and visit families in the hospital. Now, hospital visits uh, can be extremely rewarding but they can also be challenging because we get to celebrate in the gift of new life with parents that have babies, but also bear the burden of sorrow in the face of disease and and, and sickness and ultimately death. And so at times, hospitals can feel 
like a desolate place. The stench of death is just really present in hospitals. But I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a hospital room that's occupied by a believer or a believing family, and there's just a clear, intangible peace that surpasses the feel of the rest of the hospital. In fact, a, a peace and a presence that's, that's so tangible that even hospital staff can feel it at times. What's going on? It's the presence of God at work and his people bringing about life in dry and desolate places. God is doing that in our midst. God is causing patches of green grass to pop up in places they don't belong. Jesus is inaugurating a new kingdom. He's ushering in a new creation. But third, he's leading a new exodus. So one of the more obvious connections uh, that would have been likely apparent to these Jewish disciples was that, you know, as Jesus provides bread in the wilderness, he's, 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 he's revealing that he is the greater Moses leading a new and greater exodus. This is what they would have had in their mind. God provides bread in the wilderness. Well, where do we see that? We see that in Exodus. As God brought Israel out of slavery and out of bondage in Egypt and brought them into the promised land, Exodus tells us about this period, 40 years, where they wandered in the wilderness. And sure enough, they got hungry. They needed food. So what did God do? He supplied bread from heaven. He supplied for their needs, their every need. Where there was no way, God made a way. Where there was no means to move forward, to progress, I don't have what it takes. We don't have what it takes to keep going. God provided. And as Jesus multiplies this food, he's showing his disciples that a new exodus has begun. Did you know that that's what you're a part of? If you're a believer here this morning, you are a part of a new exodus. Where God has drawn us not out of Egypt... But through the person and the work of Jesus Christ, God has drawn us out of the slavery to sin and death, and he's bringing us into his place of life and freedom. But you're on a journey. You're in the wilderness. Yet God is providing. I love this thought that we're a part of a new exodus. You ever felt stuck? You ever felt like you're in that place in your life where you just can't get free? Where no matter what you do, what you try, what method you employ, you feel just as enslaved and just as stuck. Good news. Jesus is leading a new exodus. And you can be a part of it too. What is Jesus doing? He's inaugurating a new kingdom, ushering in a new creation. He's leading a new exodus. But here's the question for us to to conclude with. How is Jesus accomplishing this? How does Jesus accomplish this? How will Jesus inaugurate this kingdom and usher in this new creation and lead this new exodus? Well, Jesus literally and figuratively tips his hand here. Look with me in verse 41. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. Listen, he took, he blessed He broke, he gave it to his disciples. He took, he blessed, 
broke, he gave it to his disciples. Does that sound strangely familiar? This is a sign of something to come, just like on the night before his crucifixion. At the Last Supper, where he too took, blessed, broke, gave. Jesus is showing his disciples how he would inaugurate this new kingdom, how he would usher in this new creation, how he was going to lead this new exodus. Later on in Mark, we're told this about the night before the crucifixion. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in the kingdom of God. This is my last cup of wine until we all sit down together and enjoy it together. So how would Jesus accomplish all this? And it was through his death and his resurrection. How was Jesus going to do it? He was going to do it through sacrifice. At the cross, God's power and his compassion and his generosity were put on full display. The cross was God's provision of abundance to a world of want. The cross is where the bread of heaven was broken open and made available to the many. At the Last Supper, Jesus provides life for the twelve. In the wilderness, Jesus provides life for the 5,000. But it was at the cross that Jesus provides life for the nations, for you and me. Jesus multiplies life, but how? By being broken in our place. This is the heart of the gospel. We contribute need. We contribute lack. We contribute sin. And Jesus exchanges it for life, forgiveness, wholeness, and freedom. You see, this isn't all that we see here. Because the fountain of God's abundance is the cross. But the question for us today is, how does he continue to extend his provision and his grace to the world today? And the answer is through us the church. Who extends the message of the gospel that saves? It's the church. Who is described as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to a broken and hurting world? It's the church. Who are the pioneers of this new creation? Who are the ambassadors of this new kingdom? It's the church. When the disciples saw the needs of the day, their immediate response, and it's probably like our response as well, their immediate response was send them away. Just send them away. They got a good sermon. Jesus, you gave them a good sermon. Send them away. The job is met. Let them go take care of themselves. The need is too great. We have too little. How does Jesus respond? Look at me, verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread, which is essentially about a year's worth of wages, and give it to them to eat? 
And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found it, found out, they said, five and two fish. So this is key. Jesus' miracle is not out of thin air. Jesus could do that, but it's not. In a way, it's very similar to the manna that comes from heaven in Exodus. In another way, it's not, because it's not just out of thin air. No, he takes and uses what the disciples are willing to offer to him in faith. I love this progression. You give them some to eat. They say, no, we don't have enough. Jesus says, exactly. Go and see. And bring me what you do have, and I will multiply it. So here's some kingdom math for you. Lack plus faith equals multiplication. (laughs) You're like, no, that doesn't, yeah, it doesn't work here, but it works there, right? Lack plus faith equals abundance. The lesson here is that God will provide, but we have to be willing to be the means of his provision. We can't just pray that God meets the needs of our city. We can't just simply pray that God meets the needs of our nation. We can't simply pray that God meets the needs of our world. We must be willing to meet the need. We are not the dead end of God's provision and abundance. We are the conduits of his grace. We are grace dispensers, as Philip Yancey put it. What did God tell Abraham when he promised him this amazing promise about through his seed, all the the nations of of the world would be blessed? He says, I will bless you to be a blessing. As one commentator put it, before we can say there's nothing that we can do, send them away, we should first go and see how many loves we have. And what we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ is a ministry of word and deed. Some churches pride themselves on being a word-centered church. We preach the word. Some churches pride themselves on being deed-oriented ministry, social justice-type ministry. The way I'm seeing it here is we don't have an option. We don't get to flounder between what we desire. We don't get to align with what aligns with our personalities. To be a church that reflects the person and the work of Jesus Christ means to be a word and a deed ministry. Jesus provides the bread that satisfies the soul through his word. Jesus provides the bread that meets the needs of the body. Body and soul, word and deed, gospel ministry, mercy ministry. And listen, This requires that we all participate. You may be familiar with the story as it appears in other gospel accounts. You hear about this little boy and he says, I've just got this little bread and fish. Lord, multiply it. That's not what we read here in Mark. Jesus asks them collectively, what do you have? And collectively they come and they bring back their lack. And as they collectively bring what they have to offer, Jesus multiplies it. Please listen. To be a church that reflects God's heart and meets the needs of the city in both word and deed requires that we all participate. Every single one of us. Today I want us to take this opportunity really to to, to bring our little or our much and to lay it before God. 
Because I believe that this passage really demands response. To bring our lack to Jesus. Today, for some, it may be our finances. We, we, we may just look at our budgets or our finances and we say, I've, gotten, I've, I've just got nothing. Jesus says, go and see what you have. I will multiply it. For others, it may be our time. Where we're like strapped between work and recreation and hobbies and friends or if you have kids or like I mean we're burning the candle at both ends time is like one of the hottest commodities in the 21st century you you may just lack time bring your lack to Jesus today for some and others it may be a lack of experience and training I hear from so many men and women that just feel simply uh incapable of of living into the Great Commission just because they don't feel that they have the appropriate amount of training, they haven't read enough books, they haven't been a Christian long enough. Bring your lack to Jesus and let him multiply it. For others, it may be a lack of enthusiasm. Honestly, maybe you're just indifferent. Maybe you just don't care. Maybe you're hearing this and you're like, if I gave a rip, maybe. Hey, bring your, don't give a rip to Jesus. Seriously, bring your indifference to Jesus. Bring your hardness of heart to Jesus. Bring your doubt to Jesus. Bring your fears to Jesus. Bring your anxieties to Jesus. Bring your sin, just bring it all to Jesus. And let him do something beautiful through it. We come up with a number of excuses as to why we, we just can't, but I, I, I just don't think Jesus is listening. <laughs> He's listening to your prayer. He's just not listening to your excuse today. He's not listening to mine. But instead, let's bring our lack to Jesus in faith and ask that he would multiply it for his kingdom's sake. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you for...